Hi, and welcome to the Think Fast podcast. My name is Simon Smith, and I am your host. If you're new to the Think Fast podcast, let me introduce you. Fast with two T's stands for focused advancement with speed, tenacity, and transparency. Those are our core values at BenchSci, where we use machine learning to help scientists run more successful experiments to bring novel medicine to patients faster. On this episode, I speak with Cassandra Mangru, BenchSci's SVP of Product and Science. Cassandra was one of BenchSci's earliest employees, having met our co-founder Tom Leong while working on her PhD in virology at the University of Toronto. Since then, her responsibilities have expanded from managing scientific data to heading all science activities at BenchSci to now overseeing science as well as product development. Also, Cassandra advocates for and works towards greater diversity in STEM, including through spearheading initiatives that are part of BenchSci Forward, the company's program for using business as a platform for change. I've worked with Cassandra for about four years, and I can tell you that few people are able to speak as fluently as her on so many topics relevant to the use of artificial intelligence in science. Whether it's biology or machine learning, pharma R&D business needs, or scientists' user experience, Cassandra can seamlessly switch between subjects, which allows her to bridge many gaps to drive progress. Also, she's just a pleasure to talk to. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Cassandra, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Simon. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk to you. It always lifts my spirits for the day. So I'm looking forward to having the next hour or so. I want to start by having you talk a little bit about your unique family history. You've just got such an incredible story. Can you talk a bit about that? Sure. So my family is from Trinidad and Tobago, a tiny little group of islands off the coast of Venezuela. And uh, they came uh, to the country uh, several decades ago as indentured workers. And that's actually a common source of uh, many of the population within Trinidad. So they came from India. And the deal was that they could leave India uh, to greener pastures. And if they work the land, they get to keep it. So that was essentially how my family made it into Trinidad. And the really interesting thing is that my family name actually comes from my great grandfather who liked somebody else's name and Mangru uh, was his first name and only name. Uh, And then it turned into ours. So there's actually several families of Mangrus that are actually not related at all. So that's one interesting thing. Mm -hmm. Um, But the really cool thing is that Trinidad, one of its famous exports is actually oil. So when my uh, grandparents continued to work the land, there were a lot of groups that were coming around uh, and looking for oil and in that, in their particular piece of farmland, they struck oil and that was really cool. Uh, So they actually started out by um, building out a shop and that was essentially their business for a while. And as that became successful, they actually decided to leave Trinidad and better opportunities for their family. That was my dad's side of the family. And they had six kids who they left to explore first the United States. So they started in Boston, New York, and really explored the different uh, cities to see where they wanted to settle. Uh, and they actually decided on uh, Toronto. 
So they came in the 60s, I believe, Mm -hmm. and then set up shop, established that. My dad, uh, who's the second oldest sibling, actually took care um, of all of the younger siblings until they could go over, uh, until they were teenagers. And in, in and around 75 is when they came over. So the funny thing is that my dad met my mom, who's also from Trinidad here in Toronto. <laughs> and then they went back to Trinidad, got married and said, you know what? We love Toronto so much and we think there'd be a lot of opportunity for our kids. So they came back and settled in uh, the GTA area. And my brother and I, we were born out in Ajax, actually. So, mm-hmm. Which is just east of the city of Toronto, right? Just in Toronto, yeah. So at what age did you get interested in science? And do you remember what sparked that interest? I think I was always interested in biology as a kid. I was that kid that was always outside collecting bugs. I had a pet frog that I kept. Uh, My mom never let me bring it in the house, but I was always interested in observing um, everything that was outside. And then one of the things that's really interesting about our culture is that you really only have two options as a career. It's doctor or lawyer. So I probably was indoctrined as a child to think that I would be a doctor one day when I grew up. So I had the little fake stethoscope and the little medical kit when I was little. And I always knew that I wanted to help people. And I was always interested in discovery. I never really knew that research was an option as a career really until I got into university. Uh, and when I chose uh, my specialist, And it was something that was uniquely offered at St. George campus at University of Toronto Uh, in health and disease is where I got into specifically microbiology and virology, which was really interesting to me. And one of the course options there was to do a a lab course within a research lab. And that was really interesting. And I just really loved the idea of studying viruses and how something so tiny could impact the world and obviously very relevant for things that are Mm -hmm, happening today. Uh, So I went into a virology lab and that's where I ended up doing my PhD, but it was something that I really loved doing because number one, I realized that I didn't want to be a doctor anymore, specifically around one particular instance in the story, if it's okay to share. Absolutely. My brother and in high school, I actually was part of a robotics team. So I was exploring actually engineering or medical school as an option for a career. Mm. And I really loved robotics. And he followed my footsteps in uh, the robotics team. And he actually had an accident with the robot and he almost lost his finger. So I was at school and I, I heard what happened. So I rushed back home to see what was going on. And for whatever reason, they took him to our general practitioner. We were in the office, the doctor's office, and they unwrapped his hand. And I looked at it and I fainted. I am not a fainter. It's the first time in my life I've ever fainted. I just blacked out and I hit my head on the wall. So mm-hmm. on the one side, the doctor's dealing with my brother. On the other side, my dad oh. picked me up. And at that moment, I, I said, maybe the doctor life isn't for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and also just, I really just enjoy the isolation of working in the lab, my in, the introvert side of me. Uh, so when I learned about research as a career, I said, yes, this is perfect. The cells don't talk back. I can go in and do my research and frankly, be the first to ever see something down a microscope and discover and be at the forefront of that discovery. So that was really uh, the primary reason why I went into research. There's a lot to unpack there. And by the way, I also have that same reaction to blood. It's a biological reaction I've since learned, right? The body drops the blood pressure to protect you because it thinks that you're injured. And when my wife 
with one of our kids, she had to get an IV put in and they were just butchering it and just poking all kinds of holes in her hand. And she's taking it like a champ, but she's bleeding all over the place. And I had to (laughs) kneel down because there was just so much blood. So I can completely relate. I also think it's interesting your comment about being out in nature and that being part of your inspiration. So if you read the biography of Jennifer Doudna by Walter Isaacson, that was a big thing for her as well. And it makes me a little worried for today's children who I think are a little more sheltered and not as exposed to nature and spent a lot of the pandemic playing video games in their room. And I wonder what kind of impact that might have on people's inspiration for science in future. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. I think there are a lot of parallels between nature and biology. And there's actually a lot of art out there that you look down a microscope and that they compare it to what a leaf, the veins mm. in the leaf will look like and how symmetrical that actually is. And that's something really cool that I was always interested in. But also I think there are there are interesting things about playing video games as well. I think sure. that you learn about different, you learn different skill sets in those particular things. So I think uh, one of the things that we talked about in the past is how video games can build up um, quick thinking and being creative and also processing a lot of things at once, which actually really great skill sets for data analysts. <laughs> and <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> we've seen that also in the team. Some of our greatest team members that process data are also really heavy gamers. And I was well, actually great. a gamer That's when I was young as well. So it was a balance between gaming and also getting out there and getting out in nature. So I think that is also incredibly important. Yeah, I'm not knocking video games that much. I also <laughs> think people take note if you're applying to BenchSci to Cassandra's team, you can put in your cover letter or resume that you're a heavy video game player and it will increase your odds of getting a job. <laughs> I Okay, with that said, I want to switch gears a little bit here because one of the things you've talked openly about is not having a lot of great female role models for scientists when you were younger. Can you talk a little bit about that and also how you overcame that lack of role models and who you look to for encouragement and motivation? Yeah. So when I was younger, especially in the scientific field, just discovering that female role models were very rare. And I think that is definitely related to the proportion of females that actually make it into STEM as a career, something I'm super passionate about. It's something like 80-20 or the split between uh, females and males is that high. And really one of the goals that I've always had for myself is to encourage science, uh, technology, engineering, mathematics as a career for anyone that I've talked to, because it's not something that's obvious. It's not just being a doctor there are law or engineer. There are a lot of options out there. And I get a lot of questions from also uh, young people looking to explore the career options, even after grad school. You don't have to be a researcher for the rest of your life. You can take those skills and move them elsewhere and still be in STEM. You know, bench size is a great example of that. So one way of overcoming that was to create myself as a role model for others mm-hmm. and learn also from my mentees, things that they uh, are always asking in ways that I can supplement that and guide them. And also just learning from the people around me. It doesn't have to be a female mentor. It can be anyone. You surround yourself with people that you can learn from and also find others that are like-minded and are sponsors for you in your career. You being one of them, Simon, and several other leadership within Benchside really guided me throughout my career and helped me learn. And it wasn't 
gender biased in any way. It's really about finding uh, ways to succeed and the skill sets you need to do that. And I think that was one of the ways that I overcame that. As I grew in my career, I've been exposed to many other key mentors, even outside some of our advisors, some executives within pharma that have really been a guide. Just seeing them operate in their environment is always an inspiration and some people that I always reach out to just to make sure that I can learn from them and learn from everyone around me. So I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the ways that I've overcome that. Yeah, I think one of the little nuggets in there, just to, to focus in on it, is the importance of blazing your own trail, because I think there are multiple paths to the same destination. And sometimes, for example, someone might feel like they're not good at in school at math, or they're not good at science. And then they think that means they'll never be able to do something like biology or, or get involved even in, in any aspect of medicine, but there are different pathways to that. And there are, there are different, different approaches to it. One that just came to mind as well, maybe you're artistic and you could do biomedical illustration or biomedical 3d modeling and rendering. So there's so many different paths now, especially now where so much of biology is computational that, that if you are good at video games, maybe that is a, maybe there is a skill for you there to try to. So many hybrid roles that you can take skill sets that you're interested in and find something that works and encourage people to be look, keep looking, network, find out what's out there, because a lot of things that you learn aren't necessarily through things that you can find on the internet. It's mm-hmm. about talking to people, build your network, learn what's out there, learn about the opportunities. And I think that's probably the number one piece of advice I give to anyone. A lot of careers are built, not just on applying to jobs. It's really about uh, the network that you surround yourself with. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also some self-awareness about your strengths and passions and exactly and where they overlap with market opportunities. What were your specific research interests and your research focus in university and while you were pursuing your PhD? You mentioned that it was very relevant to what's going on in the world today. <laughs> yeah. So specifically, I was working on an enteric virus. And the interesting thing about that virus, and it was an adenovirus serotype 40 and 41, and they only infected children and it only mm. infected particular cell types in the intestine, which was really unique for that virus. So the idea in terms of the clinical application for that was to turn into a gene therapy vector for intestinal diseases where you know that virus would actually only target that cell type and you wouldn't get any off-target infections. Mm -hmm. A very common side effect of using more common serotypes of adenovirus. There are some uh, treatments and vaccines that are out there based on adenovirus 5. Uh, most people are infected by that just normally. So hmm. you get an immune response, your body reacts to it. It prevents the virus from getting to uh, the source or the host cell that it needs to infect. And so the focus of my research is really understanding the structure and biology around how that virus worked. What made it different? Uh, why did it only infect the intestinal cell? It had different spikes emerging from the outside of that virus that were not similar to others. So it really is about problem solving, finding patterns, figuring out what's different, and then developing hypotheses that you can test and interpret that data with confidence and perseverance uh, Mm -hmm. when things fail. And I think that's a really key uh, set of skills that come out of uh, being a grad student. And one of the reasons why scientists love working here at Benchside because uh, we know the challenge that you face in grad school. We also develop skill sets around 
you know, problem solving. There are problems everywhere, problems in the data, problems in figuring out gaps in biology, making those connections, finding those patterns, just doing it at a completely different scale here at BenchSci and therefore your impact in working with uh, groups, not just within a particular disease area or area of focus across multiple therapeutic areas, multiple disciplines within biology. That is really the, the exciting thing. And it's actually one of the reasons why I transitioned to BenchSci. While dedicated research and basic biology is so important, it's also important to build the baseline uh, for that biological information that scientists need. So that was uh, something really cool that I've learned over the years. So how did you get involved with BenchSci? You were one of the, I think the one of the first employees after the co-founders came together, right? That's right. That's right. Uh, so I actually got involved in BenchSci actually through Tom, our chief scientific officer. Tom was the master student in the lab, the virology lab that I worked in when I did my undergrad research. Uh, so that's where we met. And we worked together there uh, for a couple of years. And then he went off and did his PhD elsewhere in epigenetics. And we stayed in touch. So when he approached me a few years later about his idea of applying machine learning to biology and helping solve the challenges that we faced together in the lab, I was on board. I said, mm -hmm. whatever I can do to help, I want to be a part of it. Obviously, the first thing I did was look up, what is machine learning? <laughs> because <laughs> it's so new. Uh, and this was in around 2015 when, you know, vision ML was really becoming closer in accuracy to the human level of interpretation. And there were a lot of advancements in vision ML at that time. And also there were many companies emerging in Toronto that were leveraging machine learning and applying it to biology. Companies like Meta, Deep Genomics were coming around that time. And I was also starting to hear about it, even in career expos where they would come out and talk about their work. Uh, and you can tell it was something that was going to be major in biology um, because the best applications for machine learning are really going through a ton of information and replacing repetitive work, which was essentially how you describe anything uh, you do in biology when you're reading through papers and looking through data. Um, mm -hmm. So there's a ton of opportunity to help there. So I saw the potential of that. And I wanted to get involved and also learn more about what we could do with machine learning in that context, and specifically solving the antibody crisis problem. So I started as a volunteer and was really speaking to scientists about challenges that they face, learning more that I was not the only one that was facing challenges and selecting the appropriate tool, parsing through a ton of papers. And this is a common thing we were seeing across labs, across disciplines. And then when the team got their angel investment, I believe they started hiring part-time contractors to start labeling data, which is really how I started learning more about machine learning and best practices around it and making sure that you uh, limit bias in your data sets and making sure you're labeling objectively, thinking about it from a machine learning perspective and machine learning accuracy. And that's where I learned a lot of it. And that's also where I got an opportunity to work with um, some of our uh, key machine learning experts within the team. And I was just fascinated by uh, the application of that. And um, the really interesting thing apart about that was that, as I mentioned earlier, I was interested in engineering as a potential discipline and worked in robotics. And I also love biology. And I realized as I was working with the team, I came full circle, uh, working mm -hmm. now at the intersect of science and technology, bringing in my engineering interest, also applying that to biology, figuring out how we could leverage the domain expertise that we have in biology and also take expertise from other machine learning experts to find solutions. And that was really interesting to me. So labeled a ton of data 
in that time. And then when the opportunity arose to have a full-time position, Lauren actually reached out to me uh, and said- Lauren being the, the current CEO, CEO of Benchside. Yes. Yep. He reached out and said, hey, uh, we have this opportunity. Do you want to join? And I think his primary reason for that was as part of my part-time contract work, I was also consulting on the initial versions of the platform. So one of the really funny stories about it is the first version of Benchsai, which I think was very crude and rudimentary. We started out with pie charts showing the distribution of the application. So how many applications each antibody was used for in pie charts. Tom, for some reason, loved pie charts a lot. So he showed us the first prototype and all the other scientists around the room were like, oh my gosh, this is so great. I love this. And I was the only one on the side saying, uh, this sucks. <laughs> <laughs> what is this? Nobody wants to see a page full of pie charts. They want to see the figure. They want to see the experimental output. When you read a paper, it's the first thing you look at, because if you look at the figure and you can interpret the data correctly, and it matches what the scientist uh, wrote about the interpretation of that content, uh, then it builds your confidence in the experimental output. And you also right. understand the things the scientists may not have referenced in the text, uh, because oftentimes you see a lot of proteins or cell lines or other things being studied in the image that scientist doesn't even reference. But frankly, that information is very important across the board. Mm -hmm. So the uh, figure is the ground truth and the text of the paper is the interpretation of that raw yes, data. Exactly. Uh, and that's why it was so important as we evolved our technology, we looked at both. We looked at the text and we also looked at the image. And when I told uh, Tom about the prototype, I said, hey, you need to put figures in here because that is going to be the key. And they said, oh, okay, we can make that work. Uh, and then that was actually the first time I also met Loren. I didn't know who he was. Uh, and he noticed that interaction. And that was the balance we really needed on the team to make sure that what we're doing and building actually uh, aligns with the needs of our users. And uh, that was how I actually joined because I was really excited by that. That was really fun working with people who uh, were super, super smart, who knew how to get that data. And I could help translate that into something that users could actually leverage. I've got a couple of things and uh, I want to continue with your career progress at Benchside. I think the first one is as a, a father, I have a, an 11 year old daughter and an eight year old son. You think about how do you, how do you raise your kids to be curious and how do you get them to expose themselves to new things? And your story reminded me a little bit about what they say to encourage kids to eat a broader range of foods, including things they wouldn't normally like, like vegetables and so on. And some of the advice is just put it on their plate. Just put a little bit on their plate because their frequency of exposure will lead them to want to explore it in future. And I think about your background of exploring biology and a little bit of robotics and having a taste of that and then getting an interest in it. And then how much later in your life it came back and shaped your career because you had been exposed to it at a younger age. Imagine if you had never had the opportunity to be exposed to robotics or to go out into nature, but the simple exposure led you to discover things you were interested in and then that had an influence on your future career. So I think that exposure for kids is, is so important. Another comment, if you'll allow me just to drill it. So I think another interesting thing in your story is that you talked about the importance of networking. And in your case, you... You networked with Tom. You also offered yourself up for a volunteer role. You had no idea what would have happened there. And then that created new opportunities for you. You embraced some opportunities that opened up new opportunities and, and you progressed from there. 
And the last observation I want to make is just the importance of not getting, not falling in love with your own technology and making sure you have the voice of the user always represented. Because with powerful technology, like there's so much you can do with machine learning and there's so many ways you can display the data. And you often get excited at the technical sophistication or the visual interest of what you've done. And the risk is that you don't end up serving users, but you are the voice of the user, correct? That's right. That's right. And not getting caught up in frameworks or things that you've done in the past. And that's something that we're always conscious of as we move forward, because sometimes I've been away from the bench for a while and uh, you get caught up in the bias of being in a technology company and being involved in the data. So that's why it's always important to have a diverse set of expertise and also fresh eyes um, at the table to make sure that you're always working towards driving value. Mm -hmm. So tell us a little bit more then about your career progression. I've worked with you now for almost four years. And during that time, I don't think there's anybody in the company who's had more titles than you. (laughs) (laughs) You've I think almost every year or so, we've been growing as a company and and you've grown and and moved into more and more roles. So can you talk a little bit about your career progression, why you think you were able to progress so rapidly in your career, and a little bit about your current role? Sure. So I think, number one, a part of this was definitely luck in connecting with Tom in the way that I did and finding the lab and having him in my network, because without that connection, it's likely I wouldn't have been exposed to BenchSci. The other part of it is just hard work and determination. And when I first started, I was a part-time contractor, a biomedical data analyst, a team we actually still have today. And when I joined, I was a scientific associate. So in that role, I was working very closely with Tom, processing a ton of data, getting to know our technology more, really working on it full time. And the first thing that Laurent told me when I joined was, hey, you need to hire a team of 20 BDAs and manage them, uh, which was to a, many people. A, a BDA be is a business data analyst. Our biomedical data, data analyst. Biomedical data yeah, analyst. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, so to some people, that would be intimidating, but throughout my graduate career, I actually mentored in grew many people within the lab. So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to jump into that head on and take on that challenge and did a lot of research on the side, how to be a manager. What are things I can do legally and not, this is a startup. Right? We didn't have <laughs> the framework. There was no training going on what was available using those resources and being resourceful and getting them built up my knowledge there, hired the team, managed that team. As we grew as a company, then we needed more full-time in-house scientists So then when I had the opportunity to build out the science team, I moved into head of scientific operations, and that was actually within the same year. And that was really exciting. And just being able to manage someone full-time, and that's actually one of the team members is still with us today, one of the senior members of the science team. Uh, And then after that, I moved to head of science. So taking on more responsibility around ownership of the scientific content, working with Tom to translate the information that was being output from the R&D team as he worked with Elvis, our chief data officer, into scientific content uh, that made its way to the platform. Uh, So that's where the operations came in. And as head of science, I took on more of a commercial facing role. Um, So Tom really didn't like flying or doing demos in front of our customers, and I enjoyed doing that. So I took on that additional responsibility, and I think that's a very 
common, something common in startups. You wear many hats. So I started wearing more hats and taking on more responsibility, became head of science. And then in that time, and that was between each of those roles. And then in that time, started working on building out more of a robust pipeline. The team started growing, um, growing the science team having more uh, of an impact on the commercial facing side, developing training for our scientific liaison team, who was part of our customer success, really working throughout different parts of the company, learning about the business, learning about the technology, learning about the data, understanding how all of that meshed. And as we grew as a company and the impact of what we uh, were doing um, throughout pharma was being realized, I took on even more responsibility there and ownership of that. And that's when I made my way to VP of science. The team at that time grew uh, I think to 10 members. And then we started creating an org structure around what science team does and uh, how they impact not only our data, but our product, working on building out our reagent content, as well as now our experimental data, our ontologies, making sure that the experimental data we're connecting was accurate and defining what that team does. And really it's about the accuracy, integrity, comprehensiveness of that data and making sure it's servicing our users. So creating a team that essentially took some of my responsibility that I had in the past, handing off my Legos to key members in the team that took on more responsibility themselves. And then more recently this year, I took over a product, which was, I think, a little bit more intimidating for me because I'm not coming from background of product training, but something that my mentors reinforced with me was that I was actually doing product from the beginning working with our users, understanding the challenges, making sure that what we were developing was actually going to make its way into features that scientists understand and found intuitive. Uh, and I was a part of that from the very beginning. And that was essentially how I transitioned into product. And now I'm the SVP of product and science. And it does make a lot of sense. If you think about it, we are a, a very scientific product. What we're doing is very complex. It's not just about uh, developing the data. It's about creating an interface that's intuitive for users to leverage that data. And you see a lot of companies out there that just have that data, um, but scientists don't know how to use it. Uh, technology is frankly intimidating. And to your point earlier, me being exposed to some of the engineering aspects and the coding actually made me more comfortable working with various team members throughout our platform stream and understanding the complexities of moving information end to end. Uh, and that really is essentially my role now, making sure that the teams understand the vision for the product, understanding where we can go by leveraging the commercial information that we gain from our stakeholders, pulling that in, meshing it with what's feasible from the technology perspective and creating a very exciting roadmap that allows us to have a greater and greater impact every year. Yeah, it's a epic, <laughs> epic four or five years there. <laughs> I think my summary too of, of, of your unique role and position and skill set is that you're very much a connector. So you can speak the language of science. You can speak the language of the technology. You can speak the language of executives within pharma companies, and you can speak the language of scientists and pharma companies. And I think because of that, you bring a, a unique ability to synthesize things that is really hard to replicate. I, I think you very much a unicorn. I want to take us now into the, uh, value speed, the speed question answer round here, the lightning round. And I want to ask you a few questions related to our values of focus advancement with speed, tenacity, and transparency. In the interest of time, I might have to compress some of the ones that I was going to ask. But uh, if you're ready, I'm going to start with a question here about focus. You have 
a ton of demands on you. So those include internal and external and people requesting features and requesting your time and so on. I guess I have a, I'm going to condense two questions. What's your system for prioritizing and keeping yourself and the team focused? So how do you prioritize first what you, the department is going to work on and how you're, what you're going to focus on building, let's say? And then how do you personally prioritize your own time? And is that the same system or do you have different systems? What's your approach to keeping focused? Yeah, I think it's a little bit different for work versus personal. And so start with work. The focus is always around driving value for the user. So when we're prioritizing content or opportunities, we're always looking about what is the outcome or impact that particular opportunity is going to have? Followed by, is it feasible? Do we have capacity? How does that work end to end? And are we going to hit the timelines that we're looking at? And that is not just something that's decided in isolation. It involves collaboration across the teams, bringing everybody in, understanding it from both the technical, the science, and also the business perspective and making sure that we're prioritizing accordingly. Obviously, things with the highest impact and drives the highest value and also allows us to capture the biggest opportunities are the ones that go first. And so from a personal perspective, in terms of focus, that is something that I actually ask help for from the team in helping me understand what's the urgency behind particular requests, what is the timeline that's needed, help me understand the context behind the request itself. Doing that allows me to understand how to triage and prioritize appropriately and making sure that I'm devoting my attention in the right place. I think urgency is different uh, than importance. So I think making sure that definition is clear and the team can clearly communicate that is obviously important and defining the mechanisms by which uh, we communicate with each other in those different instances, things that are urgent, text, phone call, things that are not so urgent, but important that need a quick response, Slack, things that can wait, email. And that helps me prioritize my work because I know that if someone's calling me, something's on fire, Mm -hmm. (laughs) my attention right now. And in terms of how I prioritize my time, I think it's also setting boundaries for the morning. That's my focus time. That's the time where I want to make sure that I have time to catch up on information so that I can make sure that I can contribute to the vision and just have time to think and make sure that's blocked and that teams understand that's a time that I consider religious in a sense, just to make sure that I can devote my time and make sure I make time for that. Uh, And the rest of the time, it's just about respect and communicating effectively and being accommodating where it's appropriate and also setting uh, the tone for, I guess, the requests that come in as well. So that is really, truly (laughs) the mechanism. Uh, And it's really about compartmentalizing it and just Mm -hmm. making sure you're not letting it overwhelm you because as a leader, a key thing is uh, to remain calm in the storm, be that lighthouse Make sure that you're not reacting, you're responding. So you take the time to digest the information, assess, and then prioritize and respond appropriately. I think breaking things down is really important. One other piece of advice that you gave, which I think everybody can do better at, is asking for context. So I think oftentimes when you have a lot on your plate and somebody asks for something, I know this is with, in my case for sure, my first reaction is to get anxious and then defensive. Uh, So I'm thinking to myself, I have so much going on and you're asking me to do this thing. And now I'm anxious and now I'm defensive and I'm telling you can't do it. But I never clarified how important is that? When would you like that done by? Are there some alternatives that I can pursue? Mm -hmm. And nobody comes at you saying, 
hi, Cassandra, I would like you to do this thing, but it's a level one on the priority and it doesn't need to <laughs> be done until Tuesday of next week. And also there are five alternatives. Like That's up to the recipient because it's just not normal for people to come at you like that. That's right. I think you can try to put it. Sometimes I'll put an FYI in an email subject line so people know they don't have to respond. But I think it's on the recipient of the request to clarify in order to hopefully reduce their anxiety. Because usually things aren't immediate. Someone just wants to make sure you're aware that they're necessary. Yeah, yeah. And I think one thing, just being completely vulnerable here, that I did in the past, which I really had to get over, was saying yes to everything. Mm-hmm. Because I wanted, I didn't want to disappoint anyone on the team. I wanted to make sure that things were moving forward. But as responsibilities grew and more things fell on my plate, it's just not possible. I don't scale as a person. And so being able to understand what the need is, delegate if needed, understand if I'm really needed for that particular thing and being able to triage that appropriately is a huge learning for me as I grew as a leader as well. Yeah. And, and I think learning, there are different ways to say no. So there's a way to say no, which you come off like an asshole. And there are ways <laughs> to say no, which is, unfortunately, I can't do that within the time frame but I can do this within the time frame, or I can do what you want within a longer time frame, which That's is effectively right. also a no, but it's a much, <laughs> but there's some options there, right? So. <laughs> it's, a, it's a better no. Okay. Yeah. Let's, let's uh, switch gears now to the value of advancement. So you have to learn a ton about technology like machine learning in order to be successful here. And I was wondering if you had advice for how scientists like you could advance their careers in technology by learning the tech and and getting involved with this. So what would you say to someone who said, who was a scientist who said, Cassandra, I think what you've done is amazing. I'd love to follow in your footsteps, but I don't know the first thing about machine learning or quantum computing or name some other emerging technology. What would be your recommendation for how they could advance themselves in their careers? Yeah. And that's actually a question I get a lot, uh, especially for those that are applying to positions in the company and they're just interested in how to get your foot in the door in a machine learning company when you have absolutely no background in machine learning. I think first and foremost, the question is, do you need to for the position that you're applying for? Because just because it's a machine learning company doesn't mean everybody's doing machine learning. Mm -hmm. And I think it's getting an understanding of the position you actually want to be in. Understanding machine learning, I think there are many opportunities now that are available that weren't available back in the day. For me, it was actually having the opportunity of sitting down with our machine learning engineers and just learning about it and them sharing resources. And there are a lot of papers out there, even in resources that scientists publish in bioarchive around new and emerging technologies, a lot of coverage in sources that are even um, simpler to understand just to get a high level overview where machine learning is going and how it works. And so I think those are great starting points. There are also courses like those available through Udemy, even LinkedIn learning that you can just get a uh, high level overview of what it entails to actually apply machine learning. And one thing that I've seen and realized over the years is that machine learning is actually becoming more and more prominent within biological research, especially those projects that involve a lot of data, genetic information. Um, So there are scientists that are actually leveraging that for their existing work uh, and understand some of the nuances of applying that. So there's opportunities even to incorporate it in your work now that you can leverage those skill sets as you look into positions in industry. And I think the most important thing is, uh, again, to network. I can't emphasize this enough. I think you'll find that more often than not, people who are in the space love talking about it and love talking about the challenges and love talking it out because uh, at the base of all of it, we're all problem solvers. We're all 
pattern uh, analysis people that love looking at underlying challenges and figuring out how to solve them. And I think machine learning is a great way to do that. Just having that crosstalk and collaborative conversation with others that are experts in the field or in a particular area interested in is also a great opportunity. Mm -hmm. I think even on that networking part, one thing that people might not realize is that when you get when you're a hyper growth company like Benchside is now, where we're growing our team like 100% year over year, one of the biggest challenges is always hiring. And really, the majority of my job right now is hiring. That means you're constantly needing to meet people. I know that next year I'm going to need to be hiring. So now I'm constantly meeting people. So when great people reach out to me and say, hey, listen, I'm really interested in Benchside. I'd love to learn more about XYZ. Take a look at my profile. Here's why you might be interested in speaking with me and maybe there'd be a role in the future. I usually say yes. And uh, that's because it's purely for selfish reasons. (laughs) Maybe this person would be a great hire a year from now, even though I don't have a position right now. So I don't think people should be afraid to do that uh, if they're interested in working at a hyper-growth company. the, The fuel of hyper growth companies is amazing people. Totally agree. And also on top of that, if I'm not the expert, I'm more than happy to connect them to the expert Mm -hmm. uh, within the company. And more often than not, they're very interested in having that conversation. So even if the person you reach out to isn't maybe the right person at first, they're usually more than willing to connect you to the appropriate person to continue the conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. We got a little bit more time here and I got three more speed round, lightning round questions for you, and then uh, we can close it out. So speaking of speed, so we're a hyper growth company. We're moving very fast, constantly. Speed is one of our values, super important in order to capitalize on the opportunity and have the biggest impact on science possible as soon as we can. But in your position in particular, there's a huge risk to speed because if we push something forward too quickly and it ends up resulting in inaccurate data for scientists, that's never something we want to allow. So how do you strike that balance between moving really fast and ensuring the highest integrity and quality of the, the data and interface that we're delivering to scientists? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the number one thing is impact versus effort. Obviously, we're dealing with a ton of information across many different domains. So understanding where to focus, what the priority is, and how much effort goes into that is a huge part of it. I think as a scientist, and I've seen this across the team, especially new team members that are joining, you want to perfect everything. Uh, so you have a file of 600 histone, prote- uh, histone modified proteins that you want to get through. And then you realize only two users of thousands actually care about this data, right? Is it really worth the time and effort at this moment to work on that? Or should you focus on something that's going to impact our entire user base? Uh, mapping of proteins and making sure that's accurate, adding new content that everybody could leverage. So I think it's number one, making sure that the team understands um, the value of the 80-20 rule, making sure that you're um, putting the effort where it's most warranted. And also they understand the strategy and the vision and the most important things to our user base at the moment, so that when they make those judgment calls independently, they understand where their effort is best focused. And that really drives quality of information because we want to make sure scientists are interacting with the most important and best information uh, as they're working through and the most scientists get access to that. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of the 80-20 principle. So I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) So now related question, tenacity. So you're moving really fast. You're trying to solve these problems and you run into a barrier. What is 
your approach or what are your approaches to solving those kind of problems? Do you have some things that always tend to work for you when your your team or the multidisciplinary team of engineers and scientists hits some kind of barrier? So for example, do you bring people together in a brainstorming session or do something else? What are some of the ways that you respond when someone comes to you and says, hey, Cassandra, this thing we wanted to do, it turns out to be way harder than we thought, and now we're stuck. What's your response? Yes, I think there is a tendency, especially when the problem is huge, just to get overwhelmed and not know what to do next. And just as I mentioned before, it's important to slow down, understand the situation, understand the context. So if it's something that's urgent, that needs attention, it means bringing everybody together and understanding everybody's perspectives and break it down into small pieces that you can understand and then break down the assignment of those different pieces to the appropriate team. Some people might think that they have to solve everything and that's not the case, or they may not have a perspective that could actually drive the project forward and they didn't have that opinion or that thought that could have driven that project. So the idea is bring everybody together, understand the situation, map it out, break it down, and then take it in chunks. Uh, And usually every problem that comes to the table, it's usually solvable. If you just break it down and see what we can do first to move it forward, or what information do we need to gather to determine if it's even feasible um, before you make a decision. And I think that's usually the first approach. Now, there's always tension when you're looking at something, right? You want to do something scientifically, but it's not feasible technically. And then it's about opening people's minds to being creative in ways that we can approach it, maybe do it a quick and dirty approach just to see if uh, there's any value in doing what you're doing before you go all in and devote all your resources into doing that. Uh, And really brainstorming with the rest of the team, making sure you get alignment. You don't necessarily need consensus just to make sure that you are moving forward with something that you know is actually going to make an impact. And so it's really, it depends on the issue, obviously, and it's usually Mm -hmm. on a case by case, but usually leveraging those different uh, approaches helps us break things down and uh, make sure that we're all aligned as we go forward. Those are some great approaches. I I think in general, helping people change their perspective to approach a problem in a new way is just a great prompt. I think one, you hinted at this as well. I think a really good one is what's the least we can do? Because I think when people try to solve a problem, they're immediately going to, what is this grand solution? That And they're thinking, oh, and then they're like, that's too hard to do. We don't have enough time. And so if you flip it around and you say, what's the least we can do to achieve the goal in the time that we have? And then people start thinking, if we did this, that would solve that. And and it just perspective changing is, is really valuable. Okay. Last fast speed round question here transparency. I'm sure there are many times when you have to give really tough feedback where somebody like a product designer or an engineer has worked super hard, put in a lot of hours to try to build something amazing and they bring it to you and you have to tell them that it's just not meeting the mark scientifically. Mm -hmm. How do you break that bad news? Mm -hmm. I think this is something that doesn't just apply to product. It's across the board. And I think in this case, radical candor is incredibly important, a value that we have across the team. Praise in public and critique in private is usually the approach. In all cases, honesty and directness is appreciated because not sharing your opinion and letting it go forward, letting the person think that they're doing the right thing doesn't help anyone. So I think it's really about helping the person understand the perspective 
and your perspective about it. And I think this is where emotional intelligence comes into play here. Also trying to understand where they're coming from and their thought process and maybe finding a win-win situation if you can. If not, just helping them understand why this is not going to work and work with them to find alternative solutions if you need to move forward or provide uh, that feedback that they can take as they go on to the next iteration. Not always easy to do, but not easy. <laughs> so I, and I think as uh, just in my own personal career, oh, I think over time you realize it honesty really is always the best policy, even if it's super painful in the moment, it just saves so much pain down the road where you're just oh, dragging totally. it out by not being completely upfront. And, and I think it's a muscle that you have to continuously flex. Cassandra, we are approaching the end of this very enjoyable conversation. I have two more questions for you and then we'll wrap it up. So the first is without giving away anything too confidential, because I know we don't want to do that. What at a high level is next for Benchsci and what are you most excited about? I am incredibly excited about the potential that we have as a company to help scientists throughout the experimental design process. As our flagship product is reagent selection, we help scientists find the most appropriate tool or model system for their work. But our technology has the capability of analyzing data to a much more granular level that could be leveraged to help scientists throughout that process. So I can't reveal too much more than that, but stay tuned because I think it's a lot of exciting things to come. We will have to definitely get you back on to talk in more detail when we we can. And uh, yeah, the last question for me is just, what did I miss? What didn't I ask that you thought I should ask? Or as we were talking, did anything come to mind that you wanted to revisit? I think one thing for me, and I get this question a lot, especially from uh, females who want to be in leadership, and I'm super passionate about it. I'm part of our forward program that drives diversity in STEM and also looking to drive leadership within the company as well. Be direct and tell your manager or anyone who's out there, like your mentor, about what you want and self-awareness about what you're good at is really important as you think about your own career. Explore options that you may not have even considered and get in there and actually try it. Many scientists ask, what's Benchly like? He said, why don't you apply to the BDA position and you'll understand a little bit about it uh, and you have a taste of what it is and you can determine if that's something you want to do or not. There are many scientists that have joined the company that said, you know what, I'm more passionate about the bench. And you know what, that's okay because that's your passion and that's where you should be. But at least you tried be self-aware of what you're good at, try things out and explore new options because that's really how you advance. That's great parting advice. Cassandra, thank you as always for a, a very pleasurable conversation. I hope that everybody listening found it as enjoyable as I did. I'm lucky that I get to speak to you on a regular basis and, and hopefully people got a little taste of that here. So thank you very much for your time and for yeah the, the, the great discussion. This was a lot of fun. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for listening to the Think Fast podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Cassandra Mangru, SVP of Product and Science. To make sure you don't miss any episodes in future, be sure to subscribe in your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you heard, maybe you'd be a good fit at BenchSci. 
You can learn more about the company and culture at careers.benchsci.com. Until next time, stay safe and think fast.